Welcome to the Black Agenda Podcast. I'm your co-host, Devin Dino. I'm along with my co-host, Adrian Guest, and we're back at it again. Today is October 30th, 2021, the day before Halloween. And we're back here with you to bring you more news for weekly roundup number 20. And there's plenty of news to get to, like always. So let's get right into it. Starting from the top here, we're going to go to Ohio, where a, a school board president is, has been asked to resign, actually after refusing to vote against an anti-racism resolution. So her name is Laura Kohler, and she is serving her fifth year with the State Board of Education of Ohio. And she told NBC News she intended to offer her resignation to Governor Mike DeWine on Friday morning. She said the decision came after the state Senate made it clear that she would not be reappointed. Uh, Last year, Kohler helped write an anti-racism and equality resolution in the wake of George Floyd's murder in May of 2020, Kohler said, quote, in October, there was a resolution that was brought forward to rescind what has become known as Resolution 20. I voted. I voted not to rescind. And I believe that the fact that I was not going to be confirmed by the Senate is a result of that vote. And so she will not be reappointed and she has been asked to resign and she will follow through with that. So. Um, Adrian, not what you want to hear when you're talking about an anti-racism resolution, which should be popular, uh, but it looks like she was rescinded and she's going to lose her appointment because of that. Yeah, um, that's why we reported this story, listeners. It's you know definitely what you um, feel is anti what we want to happen. You know, um, we want people to support anti-racism, but apparently in Ohio, one of my neighboring states, that is not that important. We're going to take you to another story. Uh, this is out of the Biden administration where they're discussing paying about $450,000 per victim of Trump's border separation. And remember, there were families that were separated at the southern U.S.-Mexico border under President Trump's administration. So now President Joe Biden's administration is considering those payments to compensate the victims separated from their families. A report from the Wall Street Journal cited that these payments would be close to about $1 million per family, though the numbers could change. The main reason we wanted to kind of address this story is because that obviously as the black agenda, we talk about black centric things and we've talked about reparations on our show. And, you know, obviously this is a different situation because these families were separated, you know, at the border. Um, but in a lot of ways, um, the trauma, uh, because I'm sure in the, in, in the lawsuits with ACLU, there's a lot of things about trauma and pain and suffering and all that kind of stuff of why the victims deserve this amount. A lot of those same things could be said about, you know, black Americans, um, due to slavery, due to Jim Crow, um, even when things were integrated, you know, there was still people persecuting us and not wanting us to be a part of all of the things that are happening. So it's just so interesting that the Biden administration, whose hands have been so tied with so many other issues from policing to voting, reparations, the list goes on, even his Build Back Better plan. Um, there's there's talks about these sorts of things, but not, you know, other things. I, I don't know. I, I understand that the um, Latino uh, community is growing uh, as far as a voting block. So, you know, you got to appeal to where your voters are. So. Yeah. I, I I don't understand it, but I get it at the same time. And that's kind of <laughs> life in America for black people. 
the things that we ask for, you know, we get told it's too much. Nah, we can't do it. There's not enough money. You're just looking for handouts. And then you see stories like this. I mean, $450,000 per, you know, family or per person is life changing. Like you get two people in the family who get those payments. You're talking about a million dollars. Like that's, that's life changing. That's enough to buy a house, pay off debt, send your kids to college and still have money left over. And it just, you know, it just seems as though when we ask for these things, we're looked at as being greedy or selfish or lazy. Like you say, the trauma that we had to deal with and we can, people can say what they want. Slavery has left a mark on our community in this country that we just have not dealt with in any real way. So you can't just tell us to get over it because we're still looking at the effects of it in our neighborhoods. And it just, it, it just it's really disrespectful, honestly, for this country to continue to say, no, we can't do reparations for black people, but we can give possibly consider four hundred and fifty dollars, four hundred and fifty thousand dollars per person to those who were separated at the border. It just seems like it just seems ridiculous. And it's just like whenever you label something as we're doing this for black people, the country just resists it. But when you do it for another group like, a, you know, stop Asian hate bill, it's OK. Nobody has a problem. And, and that's and, just and the one hypocrisy. Thing, <laughs> I want to make sure listeners know we definitely, you know, think that what happened at the border was wrong. And, you know, these families are definitely deserving of whatever they need to heal and repair and things of that nature. But what the, the main thing that we're trying to do is just contrast it to, to say that, you know, reparations just like uh, the trauma and the things that have happened with, because I mean, our families were separated. I mean, you know, we can't even trace our genealogy uh, yeah. for most of us because we don't know, we don't have those records. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that you can kind of compare and say that, you know, if they're going to do this, um, I think um, Representative Sheila uh, Jackson Lee or Sheila Lee. Yeah, I think that's how you. Yeah, Sheila Jackson Lee. She's going to have some new ammunition to say we need some reparations if yes. they do move <laughs> forward on this. So I just wanted to make sure to point that out. You know, we're not saying that, you know, they're not deserving, but, you know, we're just comparing the two situations. Exactly. That's that's all that it is. Compare, compare and contrast. <laughs> that's all this is. But we'll move on. Uh, we'll move on from that story. We're going to go uh, to give you an update here about the Kyle Rittenhouse trial that is getting ready to get underway. And there's been some news from there. So the two men who uh, were reportedly shot by Kyle Rittenhouse in Kenosha, Wisconsin last year during those protests uh, cannot be called victims during the trial. This is according to a Wisconsin judge uh, on Monday. So the judge, uh, Judge Bruce Strader, said that referring to the men, uh, one is Anthony M. Huber, who was 26, and the other is Joseph Rosenbaum, who was 36, where he says that referring to them as victims may be too loaded, but they could be referred to as rioters and looters by Rittenhouse's defense team. In addition, and this is just to give you more background to this case here, in addition to killing Rosenbaum and Huber, Rittenhouse is also accusing uh, is accused of shooting and injuring 26 year old Gage Grosskreutz, and he was uh, Rittenhouse has actually been charged with felony homicide and felony attempted homicide. So um, interesting, Adrian. You know they can't be referred to as victims, but you can definitely refer to them as rioters and looters. 
Um, it seems like a game of semantics, but, you know, as we know, words do matter. <laughs> yeah, uh, I watched um, How to Get Away with Murder, and, you know, I'm thinking about going to law school. And I know a lot of, you know, a lawyer's goals are to persuade a jury and how you phrase things, you know, victims versus looters. Mm-hmm. You know, juries will sympathize with the victim. They're going to think a looter got what they deserve. So, um <laughs> I'm not gonna. I'm not, we're not trying to call that judge out or anything, but we're just saying, you know, it's it may be a game of semantics, or it could be something that is intentional, where we do know our institutional uh, institutions can be in, in institutionally racist. So, uh, we'll move on to that and go to another um, institution that is kind of prejudiced, and that's housing. We've kind of talked about this, and a professor has actually put out you know a little bit of statistics behind this. Dr. Henry Taylor, professor at the University of Buffalo, spent uh, nearly about 30 years researching uh, the lack of improvement in Buffalo's black community. Um, Quote, blacks are still trending downwards. An entire generation of African-Americans have grown up without their standards of living and quality of life of improving. Like I said, this is from Dr. Taylor. Dr. Taylor said over the past 31 years has been little to no change among black Buffalonians. He said that the average income of black households were about 39,000 in 1990 and in 2019, it was only 42,000. So obviously only a 3000 increase. And that was over what, 30 years or uh, yep. 20, 29, almost 30 years there. Uh, The poverty rate he's saying is about 38% to 35%. So it dropped a little bit. But the the basis of this, uh, listeners, is he's saying that the reason is that, you know, 55 percent of the population is spending 30 percent or more of their income on housing. And that's a huge, huge deal when you have to spend so much of your income on housing, Devin. Um, and I mean, honestly, when I lived in Los Angeles, I mean, I was paying like sixteen hundred a month in rent for a studio apartment. And I mean, that takes a that takes a lot because, I mean, housing is a basic necessity and it's one of those things that you got to pay or else you can get evicted. I mean, it's I mean, you may you may can go without food or, or you know, you know, or try to downsize your budget here or you may try to skip a, a light bill here and there or, or, or maybe, you know, they don't usually cut you off right away. But your, your rent, you've got to pay that. So this is what Dr. Taylor is talking about, listeners, is just that. Uh, a lot of black families are having to pay so much in rent. And we, you know, talked about that because a lot of us are still renters. Um, and even when we do buy homes, um, they're not even, you know, at the same value of white families. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's part of the problem. Um, it's, it's directly tied to housing. Um, you know, he also, he also mentions education. We've talked about education a lot, but only, you know, 16% of the black population in Buffalo has a college degree. And then there's also just this large number of people who have some college experience, but no degree. And that's the problem there. They're not finishing college. And so you you take that and pair it with housing and the poverty rate not really dropping, incomes are not really rising. And you get what you get in our community and a lot of our communities, which is just stagnation. There's just no improvement. It's just the same thing. Um, it's a chronic problem. And in, in, in the article, too, he just says, you know, the funny part is in a place like Buffalo, they've been run by liberal democratic leadership. So it's the Democrats that are in charge and it's, and it may not be that they're supposedly just racist and keeping the community down. It's just, it hasn't been a priority for Buffalo to help improve the situation that exists in their black community. And that's 
that's not the attitude just in Buffalo. That's the attitude across the country. Kind of like what we were talking with with Melanie and, and with the independent, you know, redistricting commissions. It's just there. It's just our our needs are just not a priority in a lot of places. And so we kind of get left behind and, and things just don't change. Whereas in other communities, they're getting new sidewalks. They're getting new renovations. They're getting block grants to redo things. Whereas ours are just kind of left to, you know, become uh, worn down and eventually gentrified. And then that drives up your rents and rates and, and housing uh, taxes. And, and it's just a self, it's a vicious cycle. And we're entering into that. It's only, and I wouldn't say it's only going to get worse, but gentrification is not going to help it in a lot of places. And so. No, yeah. it definitely, it and, and until there's a point to where we get the proper education of, you know, what it is to be a homeowner, we get the resources to actually be able to do that, you know, credit help and all that kind of stuff. And like you said, the college, um, one of the things, just before we go, I, I really think that, you know, just like high school, college needs to have better counseling to help people get ready for jobs. Uh, I know like the president of Fisk, uh, uh, I can't remember his name, uh, but he talked about that, making sure that you are preparing students for the jobs of the future, because so many people graduate high school, college, and they aren't ready for a job. And even people who go and get a little bit of college experience, they can still go out and do something, but they don't have a pathway. So, um, so many missed opportunities for our community and many communities out there, Devin. Yeah, that's that's been a, a challenge. And hopefully we'll, we'll try to make some headway. Dr. Taylor was hopeful that maybe now it's more of a priority to try to fix these things. But, um, you know, like you say, with the Biden administration, their hands are tied in a lot of places. Um, but our, our next story here is, is talking about uh, suspension records for black students and how they are suspended at a higher rate. It's a record show that black students in Polk County and many other parts of the nation are suspended at a much higher rate than other races. And concerned parents and advocacy groups said the issue is historical. Uh, current records show that about almost 12,000 students were suspended in Polk County last year. Black students are still at the top of that list with in-school suspensions, short-term suspensions, and expulsions. We're at the top of that list for all three. And this was uh, there was a study done by the American Psychological Association that shows that Black students have a harder time succeeding in environments that are tailored to white students. And while the implicit bias has been noted as so- somewhat unintentional, currently only 20% of Polk County school administrators, from teachers to other staff members, are Black. And so... Uh, Spectrum Bay News reached out to the school district, which, which acknowledged the disparity, but also pointed out that the black student suspension rate has gone down 40 percent in the last seven years. Though advocacy groups challenged that the drop has contributed to campuses being closed during the pandemic. Um, so that's not the, you know, not the drop that they were, you know, not the reason behind the drop you wanted to see. Um, this is a, a conversation we had, I think this is the very beginning of our podcast, maybe episode two or three, mm-hmm. when we talked about um, the problems in education and discipline was one of the things that we talked about because in Washington, they were trying to fix this to where if you suspended a kid, I could be wrong. I think this You're right. You're right. someone outside of school that you would still give them the materials to take the class and they weren't just completely, you know, cut off. Or they would try to find other ways outside of just suspending kids because this is not just a Polk County issue. This is 
all across the country, especially from where, where we're from is Mississippi. You, if you look at the kids that are being suspended at the top is, is black kids, especially the black male kids. They're, those are the main ones being suspended. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. And yeah, to go back to what, um, um, superintendent, uh, Chris Rachel was talking about making sure that you really minimize, uh, a child's time outside of the classroom. Um, there are other ways to discipline aside from sending a child home or sending them to, uh, in school suspension and really taking them out of the learning experience. Because what are you really doing? I mean, how are you really helping and teaching that child? Obviously, if, you know, if a child brings, you know, uh, some sort of weapon and there might need to be some sort of special case, but, um, for the vast majority of discipline, that's not the way it's happening. So, um, yeah, it's a really, really good story there to see that that's happening. And just before our break, um, we're going to round off talking about Google's investment, uh, one billion with the B in Africa. Google announced that it's going to be investing $1 billion through an event named Google for Africa to support digital transformation in the African continent. The plan will include landing a subsea cable on the continent to speed up Internet speeds for small businesses, offering low interest rates to small businesses, investing in African startup companies, providing skills training and more. With the initiative, Google says it plans to invest in projects that will be implemented across the continent, including in Nigeria, Kenya, Uganda and Ghana. As the digital economy grows in Africa, it is projected that about 1.7 million jobs will be created in Nigeria and South Africa by 2025. So really awesome to see that, you know, Africa is growing and it's getting some investment. Um, it's much, much needed and we hope that it continues. So listeners, we're going to give you our first break here. Make sure you stick with us. We got plenty of news for you on the second segment there. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the Black Agenda Podcast. We appreciate your support and we ask that you like, share, and follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, welcome back. Let's get into our second segment here. We wanted to start off by doing our little quick updates on some stories that we've reported on before. So just to start off with, the families of Charleston Church shooting going to be getting a settlement. Uh, families of nine people fatally shot in 2015 at the Black Church there reached a $88 million settlement. Uh, settlement's going to be ranging from six to six million to seven point five million per claimant. Uh and looks like there's gonna be more for those uh uh killed at the church, another five million per claimant for the survivors there. Uh, another story that we reported on in Minneapolis about their police department, the police chief is coming out again against the ballot initiative, basically saying it's unbearable uh to give the council that much power to really take away the police department there. He doubled down saying that they don't need to take it away because there is more crime, stating that I will tell you to have 14 bosses and that's not a business model we would give to, to children running a lemonade stand. Another story that we reported on with Kyrie Irvin not taking the virus, uh, one of the uh, legends in uh, boxing, Floyd uh, Mayweather, came out and said uh, that Kyrie Irvin's decision to not get vaccinated against COVID-19, quote, one man can lead a revolution to stand up against a fight for what's right. Um, so not really sure what he's trying to say with that. He basically also said an enslaved mind follows the crowd. 
Um, we don't really need to <laughs> have people endorsing that kind of uh, stuff right there because you need the vaccine. Uh, another little thing we uh, wanted to update you on is Elon Musk's net worth. Um, really, really big here. Surpassed uh, $300 billion. I think it dipped down a little bit today. I think it's about $283 uh, billion, but it's still really close. Uh, first person to ever reached that position. Um, he's actually uh, about $10 billion more rich than uh, Jeff Bezos. So maybe Jeff Bezos will catch up. I don't know. And then lastly, a little update is with Facebook. On Thursday, they announced a name change, um, going to be called uh, Meta. And also they announced, oh, I guess Mark Zuckerberg was also talking about his metaverse idea. This is a quote that he was talking about. He said, what is the metaverse? Think of it as the Internet brought to life or at least rendered in 3D. Zuckerberg has described it as a virtual environment where you can go inside instead of just looking at a screen. So... Um, I don't know, Devin. That's <laughs> out of those <laughs> out of those updates there. Um, that I, obviously the, the 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 victims in the Charleston shooting. I'm glad that they've got that. But that metaverse that sounds interesting to me. Yeah, you ready to go into the metaverse? <laughs> hey, know? I don't know. He's probably going to be putting a lot of money into it, so we'll see. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's all the big PR move. You know, trying to move away from the name Facebook. I get it. You know, but we still know who you are, Mark. We know the company. <laughs> so, uh, but we'll we'll move on <clears throat> to our next story here, which is about uh, civil rights pioneer Claudette Colvin, who is fighting to uh, expunge her record. And so, Claudette Colvin, who was arrested at the age of fifteen for refusing to give up her seat on a Montgomery, Alabama bus to a white person, is now asking for her arrest record to be expunged. And Colvin's legal team told CNN it plans to file paperwork to have the now 82-year-old woman's 1955 arrest record cleared. Uh, Colvin was arrested in March of, of 1955, and she was actually charged with two, misdeme two misdemeanor counts of violating the city's segregation ordinance and one felony count of assaulting a police officer. Uh, CNN actually obtained a copy of the arrest record, which noted, quote, there were two colored females sitting opposite two white females that refused to move to the back with the rest of the colored. Claudette Coven, age 15, colored female, refused, states the 1955 record. And it also says, quote, we then informed Claudette that she was under arrest. And so she's trying to get that off her record uh, from many, many, many years ago. So hopefully she is successful in expunging her record because although things are different, um, it should not be able to follow you now that things have changed as much as they have. Absolutely. Uh, we, we hope that we see some change out of that. Another change that uh, we're hoping to see or that Black Lives Matter chapter is hoping to see out of Washington State is a resignation of a white county sheriff who lied about a black news carrier threatening to kill him. The group will ask that Pierce County Sheriff Ed Toy be included on the county's Brady lists a law enforcement officials whose credibility has been questioned because of misconduct, criminal convictions, untruthfulness, and similar acts, according to NBC News. So, Devin, that's an interesting story right there. Uh, it's previously been reported, you know, following a 24-year-old carrier, uh, Cedric uh, Allmeyer, in an early morning 
encounter on January 27, 2021. Toria followed the man who was delivering the news in his personal unmarked SUV and did not identify himself as law enforcement. Uh, Toria called 911 that morning shortly after 2 a.m., claiming that Almire threatened to kill him, which prompted a response from more than 40 officers from multiple agencies. So that's a, that's a, that's a lot. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean, that's essentially, I mean, you, you think about it. They're thinking, uh, you know, there's an officer who's going to be gunned down. So they're responding as if this is a real situation. And he's just lying, you know? So it's like, what's the repercussion? So I'm, and I love the fact that they have a Brady, a Brady list, you know, of people whose credibility has been questioned um, just so you can keep track of these, these individuals who are supposed to be protecting and serving uh, the community. But We'll move from there to uh, go up to Capitol Hill here with some news about the January 6th insurrection. Um, There is new information on the January 6th insurrection implicating Republican lawmakers involvement. So the Hill is now reporting that two people spoke to Rolling that that reports that two people spoke to Rolling Stone. Neither of the sources were identified, though Rolling Stone described one as a rally organizer and another as a planner. Rolling Stone reported the two are also talking to the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack. Uh, the report from The Hill also states the sources said they took part in, quote, dozens of planning briefings before the January 6th rally where Trump spoke. According to The Washington Post, one of the organizers of the Stop the Still rally that day, Ali Alexander, stated that he coordinated the rally with three Trump loyalists in Congress. The list of members who are alleged to have been involved with these meetings include GOP Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. No surprise there. (laughs) Uh, Paul Gosar from Arizona. Lauren Berber from Colorado. Mo Brooks from Alabama. Madison Cowthorn from North Carolina. Andy Biggs from Arizona. And Louis Gomer from Texas. And so this is interesting, Adrian. We kind of figured for a rally of that size to happen when it did and for how it went, you had to say like there had to be some sort of organization here um, and some help, at least from the inside, to know where to be at the right time. And, you know, and so I'm not surprised, but I'm hoping they do get to the bottom. And if that's actually repercussions for these folks like Marjorie Taylor Greene, if they did, in fact, help organize, you know, an, an insurrection on the Capitol. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I'm not surprised to see Marjorie Green Taylor or Louis Gomer on the list there, or Mo Brooks, because all of them are very avid, <laughs> expected you know, loyalists. Um, and it's it, it definitely makes sense that somebody on the inside, because the Capitol huge building with the way everyone was able to figure out where to go, they knew you know who's where the officers were. Because I mean, you think about it. I mean, there's what you know. Uh, 535 offices in the Capitol because we've got, you yeah. know, you know, senators and, you know, uh, House representatives. How, how are you going to know where everyone's office is unless you frequented that place so many times or you have been told exactly where to go? We're not, you know, trying to say anything, you know, because we're not, you know, part of the investigation team, but we're just <laughs> commoners and journalists just, you know, looking at this on the surface and saying that there's got to be something underneath. So um, what we're going to do, we're going to, you know, move on from there. Um, this is an interesting story because, you know, honestly, Devin, I feel a little sorry for the guy uh, in this story here because, you know, I looked at the picture and it, it, I mean, 
it's I get it. I liked coming to America. You know, this guy was just unfortunately born white, so yeah, I, maybe he just couldn't <laughs> do it. But <laughs> so it's about Virginia Warsaw Councilman Farron Hamplin. He's apologized for posing in blackface as one of Eddie Murphy's iconic characters from Coming to America. Hamblin shared an image over the weekend and quickly caused outrage. Uh, the white councilman serves the town of Warsaw. And like I said, he apologized. In Virginia, he moonlights as a musician. He decided to pay homage to Murphy's character, Randy Watson. And if you don't remember, uh, Randy Watson is a guy that was a band leader for Sexual Chocolate. Um, hopefully you remember that. Uh, he said, in honor of my late friend, I went out as the legendary Randy Watson. And he said, give it up for my band, Sexual Chocolate. Maybe even did the mic drop or whatever. Uh, Hamblin wrote uh, alongside the Fending Post. It knew, like I said, a lot of backlash and outrage, and he deleted it and things like that. But like I said, you know, I get where he was coming from. You know, you just, it's just not appropriate to do blackface, though. It's not. It should have never been, but it's definitely not now. So <laughs> lesson learned. We're not going to call him a racist or anything like that. But blackface is no, no, that's not appropriate. Never. So rightly, rightly, he got criticized and he took it down. Um, but we'll move on from there. We'll go from from blackface to now a bid to unionize at Amazon. So we, we brought a story earlier this year talking about Alabama trying to um, unionize at one of the Amazon plants. And now we have another bid that's happening in New York. So there is a bid to unionize American work, uh, Amazon workers at a distribution center in New York City, uh, which neared an important milestone as organizers are, are preparing to deliver hundreds of signatures to the National Labor Relations Board as soon as Monday for authorization to hold a vote. Organizers say they have collected signatures from more than 2,000 employees at four Amazon facilities in Staten Island. And like I say, this bid is to establish the Amazon Labor Union in New York City. It's the second attempt this year or in the past year to form a union at the nation's largest online retailer. And in April, workers at an Alabama facility overwhelmingly rejected forming a union, uh, which that effort was led by the retail, wholesale and department store union. And so this last drive here is actually being led by a former Amazon employee, Christian Smalls, who said he was fired just hours after he organized a walkout to protest working conditions last year at the outset of the pandemic. And so um, an interesting story here. We, we brought it to you last year about uh, Alabama. And there was some real hope that they were going to unionize there at the Alabama facility in a overwhelmingly rejected it. But I think, Adrian, you know, as we have seen with the great resignation and people quitting their their positions and not necessarily rushing back into the workforce, you're starting to see workers kind of take back the power um, here. And and I think they would you would say that workers probably have the upper hand right now there. Uh, you see now hiring posters everywhere. So Amazon is in an interesting predicament. Now, it is the largest company you know, in the, in the, you know, in the country, but I would imagine, you know, this may be more successful. It could still fall, you know, fall through. They may not actually do it. Just the fact that they are trying to unionize at the Amazon facility, lets you know how much things change because unions have really kind of fallen out of favor with American workers for a long time, but we're starting to see more interest now with the pandemic happening and the great resignation. So we're seeing more interest, more participation, 
Um, so I think it's great news. I'm hoping they are successful in actually unionizing there. You know, and 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 don't hopefully listeners don't you know misinterpret what I'm about to say here because um, I worked in California where they did have unions and I understand the nature of unions and the purpose of unions. But I feel that if we have better policies, such as you know better health care, you know a higher wage, you know you know giving people um, good benefits, making sure that you know people have retirement. If we have policies around what unions are trying to fight for, we really don't need unions. And I feel like we, as an American um, society and as as a, as a robust economy. We can ensure that people have a livable wage. We can make sure that people have a home. We can ensure that people have retirement. People have, you know, multiple. I mean, we have so many companies that people we could say, hey, you know, give, you know, uh, at birth one stock to a child or something like that. There, there are so many different ways that we can make sure that these things don't have to happen. But this is where we have, because we have inefficiencies within our society, you've got to have unions and things like that to step up to the challenge to say, you know, demand better benefits for workers. So like I said, not saying that unions are bad. I support them. I'm just saying that I feel that the the, the larger question is why do we need the union? And if you dig into that more, then we can really, you know, you know, you know, that's how Amazon would be able to stop it. I mean, that's how the government, you know, if they don't want to support unions in their state or whatever, that's how they can stop it by making sure that, you know, they doctor all of these symptoms here. So that's all I'm saying. <laughs> that's kind of the attitude that Melanie had when we were talking to her about the things that we're trying to get done with, you know, the George Floyd policing bill or any of the big congressional uh, changes that we were looking for, Voting Rights Act. Those things aren't going to happen probably on a national level, but you can maybe do it on a local level. And unions and what they're doing is kind of like that. Like we're we're waiting for changes to the healthcare system and retirement and, and things that should have been taken care of, but have been kind of kicked down the road by Congress. You're now having to fight for it on a really local level to get it done in your community. And unions are ways, at least you know, for workers to try to get some of the things that they need to get done or assurances at least. Um, because we under, we understand the reality is Congress is just not just not being you know productive in taking care of the problems of the country, and we're seeing that now with the the bill that Biden is trying to get passed. I mean, that, they're fighting tooth and nail, and a lot of the things that we were looking for, like paid leave and free community college, aren't going to happen because of two senators, <laughs> you know, standing in the way. So, um, I, I support the push, and hopefully they you know, they are successful, you know, there in New York City. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I know we got to go, but, you know, I no. just, I, those, those two senators, it's just, I, you know, so many, so much of the stuff that we've talked about this season, I feel like could be resolved had it not been for those two senators from prison reform to policing to how's, I mean, so many different things that we've talked about could be, ref- and it's just listeners. This is why Devin and I continue to do this podcast and we'll continue to do it because there's a lot that people need to lobby around and be educated over. Uh, and we hope that we can continue to change some communities, but to round off our last segment here, Stacey Abrams coming through her political organization, uh, 
looks like Fair Fight Political Action Committee, the PAC, on Wednesday announced that it donated $1.34 million to help people wipe out medical debt. It's going to help nearly 69,000 people in Georgia, more than 27,000 people in Arizona, about 8,000 in Louisiana, more than 2,000 in Mississippi and Alabama. So this is completely wiping out their debt. So it's really, really awesome to see her doing that. Maybe she's going to run for governor again. They've been hoping, keeping their fingers crossed. We'll see. Listeners, we're going to give you another break here. Remember, we got quick hits, a lot of funny news. So make sure you stick with us. We'll be right back. Would you like to contribute to our scholarship fund? Would you like to help us partner with nonprofits? Would you like to submit a topic request or maybe even appear on our show? If so, go to patron.podbean.com forward slash black agenda pod. Thank you for your donation and belief in our mission. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, let's get into it. Like I said, we got our quick hits here to start us off, taking you to Miami, Florida, where an influencer, Janae Riviera, she came out on Instagram after her father had passed away. He was a veteran. But what she did was really, really odd. Um, After receiving messages of condolences from her followers, she upped the ante and she uploaded several photos posing in front of her father in his casket. And what people were kind of upset about, they were pointing out to how the photos were curated. Um, they didn't really look like photo <laughs> funeral photos. Um, she took, you know, um, photos with her father's coffin. Uh, the background was adorned with the American flag. So she tried to kind of pose, stage, set it up. And she had her hands, you know, perfectly cuffed and clasped and raised in prayer or whatever, and appeared to add insult to injury by with some of those, she posted some flirty uh, emojis and things like that. So obviously if you're posing uh, in front of your father's casket, you probably don't want to put some flirty, you know, poses and emojis and things like that. Um, She claimed though, that her father would have approved it because she had the best intentions. Um, So I don't know. <laughs> All right. I don't, think, I don't think you use uh uh dead people in coffins as props. Definitely not, but with this not to be like the old person, but with this generation, anything <laughs> is, you know, an opportunity for you to curate content. Whether yeah. it could be a funeral or you know, it doesn't matter. Um <laughs> that's just Whatever Boy, to get you a couple of followers. That's it. That's it. That's the name of the game. Engagement. I mean, hey, all news is good news, right? I mean, you got attention. <laughs> you can take the criticism, but I'm sure there were some people who were like, dang, these are some fire, you know, funeral pictures. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> so there's, there's good with the bad, you know, but welcome. This is a sign of the times, I guess, you know, curating content at a, at a funeral. But <laughs> we'll go from there. Um, we're going to go to the, the dictionary. We're going to go to the dictionary. So it looks like there have been 455 new words that have been added to the dictionary. And some of them um, are kind of interesting. So some of the new terms, are, like I say, 40, 455 new words added to the Merriam-Webster dictionary. And they said, just as the language never stops evolving, the dictionary never stops expanding. And so some of the new terms and words that were added are TBH, which you should know what that means. That's an abbreviation for to be honest. And they actually added FTW, which is an abbreviation for the win. For, for the win. Uh, Merriam-Webster explains that FTW is used, quote, 
especially to express approval or support. In social media, FTW is often used to acknowledge a clever or funny response to a question or meme. Um, it actually, so the dictionary actually added, am I right? Which is A-M-I-R-I-T-E. I'll be honest, I've never used that abbreviation, but am I right is a quick way to write, am I right? <laughs> so <laughs> um, they added that. They also added some new terms from the culinary word world, such as fluffernutter, uh, which is a, a sandwich of peanut butter, marshmallow cream, and white bread. Um, they also added or orchata or horchata, which is a the cold sweetened beverage made from ground rice or almonds and usually flavored with cinnamon or vanilla. Um, it also made the cut as does uh, chicharin, which is a popular fried pork chicharron. belly. Or chicharron, sorry, chicharron, which is a popular fried pork belly or pigskin snack. Um, that made it in there. And dad bod was actually added to the dictionary as well. Which the, de- the definition for that is a physique regarded as typical of an average father, especially one that is slightly overweight and not extremely muscular. So there you have it. Some of the interesting words that are now <laughs> part of the dictionary. Um, you can find them in the latest edition of the Merriam-Webster. Um, I've never heard of the Emirate. I, that's, that's definitely <laughs> new to me for sure. <laughs> Um, that I, I will say, you know, the, you know, in the gay community, some people like dad bods. So, I mean, I guess oh, okay. that's hats off to them for that. And that they've got their word added to the dictionary now. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, speaking <laughs> of the gay community, but that's probably not the best way to lie. Oh, that's not. But, a- but, <laughs> oh, hey, it's, it's okay. I can, <laughs> I've been watching more Dave Chappelle, I guess. I don't know. But anyway, um, <laughs> Be careful now. Say again. (laughs) Say, be careful now. (laughs) I know we can't get canceled, but we can go viral. That's what it's all about. Um, This is out of uh, uh, the Netherlands here. The rare penis plant, which is a native to the hot and humid conditions of the Indonesian rainforest, came into full bloom this week. Visitors in the botanical gardens were able to see this. Unfortunately, it puts off a foul smell. Smells kind of like meat. So if you're able to stomach the smell, um, you can kind of see it. And the interesting thing, Devin, is that it only blooms every about 25 years. So it's a really, really rare uh, occasion to be able to see this and you have to stomach the smell. Normally, the penis plant, a native of, like I said, the Indonesian rainforest, requires those conditions. But because of the horticulturists, they flowered one within the botanical gardens in the Dutch community. The penis plant, so named for its phallic shape, began to flower on October 22nd, but came to full bloom last, uh, late in the week. Enthusiasts had a special moment to see it, like I said, if they could stomach it. But one per, uh, person said that the flower quickly shriveled up. Um, after it came to full bloom. So um, it's interesting. You know, like I said, every <laughs> 25 years, you get to see a penis plant bloom. <laughs> That's just weird. <laughs> penis plant. Those two words I've never seen together, but okay. <laughs> I know. It's like, it's one of those things that's just really funny, you know? It is. And then just, never mind. We'll just keep moving <laughs> on. Um, but so our next quick hit here is about an escapee, um, who was sentenced after 29 years on the run. He actually turned himself kind of back in. And so a 64-year-old fugitive surrendered to Australian police because a Sydney 
uh, lockdown left him jobless and homeless, and he was sentenced on Thursday to an additional two months behind bars for escaping from prison almost 30 years ago. Uh, the man's name is Darko Disick, and he's been back in custody since mid-September when he walked into the police station in the beach suburb of D-Y. That's literally D-E-E-D-E-E-W-H-Y. That's the name of the city. Um, and confessed to breaking out of Grafton Prison in 1992. He pled guilty to escaping from lawful custody and was returned to prison to serve the remaining 14 months of his original 33-month sentence for growing marijuana. Um, in, in the local court on Thursday, Magistrate Jennifer Atkinson said she had no alternative to imposing a printed sentence for escaping. Um, she accepted that he had real uh, he had escaped because the real fear is that he would be de- deported once his sentence was served to his homeland, which is Yugoslavia. He feared that he would have to serve in the military during the 91 to 95 wars, which led to the breakup of Yugoslavia. So uh, this is really the definition of he, he literally was out of prison on the run and just turned himself back in to go back because he was jobless and homeless. So it's like the pandemic almost squeezed him out <laughs> and left him no choice. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's tough. I mean, that's when, when, I mean, desperate, uh, times calls for desperate measures. Um, yeah. And- I don't think I go back though. I, I, I probably wouldn't yeah. go back either. That's that's tough. But um, <laughs> I got distracted a little bit while you were telling that because I literally just had somebody who texts me and they use "Am I right?" And it oh just made- wow! <laughs> Look at that. I know it just it freaked me out. I was like, man, is somebody <laughs> listening to us like right now? I don't, I don't know. Maybe, but. Uh, it's somebody does use that word, Devin. I just wanted to make sure to let our listeners know that that that's word is verified. That's why uh, Webster added it to the dictionary. People, uh, it is in use. <laughs> uh, to take you to another story here, and this is about Halloween because you know that's tomorrow. Um, this is out of British Columbia. Police pulled uh, police in British Columbia said a driver was asked to remove the Halloween decoration from his car after a message reading "Help me." was determined to be a little too scary. The Trail and Greater District RCMP said officers responded to a report of a suspicious vehicle parked near an intersection and arrived to find the car had been decorated with fake blood and the message, help me, spelled out with duct tape. Police spoke with the uh, vehicle's owner, 36-year-old fruit valve man, and asked him to remove the spooky decorations. The man agreed to remove the duct tape after police explained that it was a little too scary and might cause more calls of concern to the police. I would definitely say if you decorate a car with something like that and I drove by or walked by, I would, I would, I would definitely like report it but i would like run away or speed away or something like that i I don't know if i'd stop and like peek in there and see if there's somebody actually in there because my job you know is not to do that but i can call somebody exactly i do the same thing i'm not gonna get that close (laughs) just close enough to be like oh is that blood okay all right let's maybe call the (laughs) that's as close as that's as much investigating we're gonna do here let the professionals handle it (laughs) Because <laughs> I don't want to end up, you know, say, have to say, help me, you know. Right. I mean, he could be the, the guy could be standing behind you. Like, you don't know. It could be a trap. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we'll go from there. So our last, uh, our last quick hit here is about 
a Colorado hiker who got lost for 24 hours and uh, kind of ignored the the calls for his his rescue from his rescue team. Um, and so a Colorado hiker who had wandered off the trail and got lost, ignored repeated calls from rescuers because the hiker didn't recognize the number. The person started hiking Mount Elbert from the south trailhead on October 18th around 9 a.m. And Lake County Search and Rescue said that Lake County Rec- Lake County Search and Rescue said this. The hiker did not return by that evening. So five um, LCSAR members searched for the hiker until early the next morning, but they were unsuccessful. The hiker told rescue officials that he had wandered off the trail around nightfall and could not find um, his way back. Uh, they said they spent the night searching for the trail. Once they located it, they bounced around onto different trails trying to locate the proper trailhead, all while not realizing that a rescue team was out looking for them. Um, so Lake County Search and Rescue says that they've left them with some advice. They say if you're overdue according to your itinerary and you start getting repeated calls from an unknown number, please answer the phone. <laughs> so if you get lost, you know, you're on a trail, or you're hiking somewhere and you get lost and you start getting repeated calls from a number you don't recognize, it's likely somebody trying to find you, not a bill collector or a scam caller or something like that. So if you get lost, answer the phone, folks. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it makes sense. You know, don't, don't, that's why we have phones. That's why you got technology. <laughs> don't leave the house on a 15% charge and stuff like that. You know, be prepared. I'm just, I'm just trying to understand, like, if you're lost, you know, you're lost. Who, who do you think is just going to call you and blow up your phone while you're out hiking all of a sudden? Like, you've never seen this summer before. <laughs> like, I mean, you, like, might, come on, you, know, you might think that you got a new stalker or somebody. You know, <laughs> it's a bill you know, collector. Like, tele- telemarketer calls are real smart because they come in with, like, numbers you feel like you've seen before. So you just don't want to answer. So I don't know. <laughs> Well, if you get lost, answer the phone, people. That's that's the message. Uh, but we're going to go ahead and wrap up the show here. That's it for our quick hits. We're going to take another break. And when we come back, we're going to wrap the show up and let you know what's coming up. So stick with us. We'll be right back. You have been listening to the Black Agenda podcast hosted by Adrian Guest and Devin Dito. If you enjoy listening to the show, let the host know by leaving a review on Apple Podcast or by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash Black Agenda Pod and give a few dollars. After all, the Black Agenda Podcast is supported by listeners like you. Let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back, listeners. So, as always, we like to give you a look forward as to what is upcoming on the podcast. So first up, on Tuesday, November 2nd, we're going to be putting out a special. This is a special election episode that's going to be coming out, as you should know. If you don't know, you should know that Tuesday, November 2nd is Election Day. A lot of state and local races are happening, governor governor races, state legislative races. So you need to be involved. Look up who's running. Go out and vote. On Tuesday, November 2nd, we're going to bring you uh, kind of a lineup and let you know some of the bigger races that are happening around the country and what you need to know before you go out and cast your ballot. So that's going to be happening on Tuesday, November 2nd. Again, that's an election special episode that's going to be coming up. And then after Tuesday, November 2nd, on Saturday, November the 6th, we will be right back here with you to bring you some more news. And that'll be weekly roundup number 21 of the season. Uh, again, it's coming to you November 6th. That's a Saturday at our usual time. 
Me and Adrian right back here bringing you news, quick hits, some funny news, some odd news, some interesting stuff. So make sure you tune in for that next Saturday. So this is our last episode of the month for October. And it's been a good month. And so I want to end it on a good note. And so before, you know, you can help us out. Help us end it on a good note by donating to us um, and giving us a little bit of money. And so Adrian's going to let you know how you can do that. Yeah, thank you, Devin. Listeners, we keep telling you we can't grow without you. You know, you know that we always tell you to like, follow, share all that good stuff. But the donations are really important because we're trying to do something. And that's something that I always tell you about is growing to an organization, growing to something that can, you know, do what, you know, Fair Fight, their pack does. You know, we'd love to be able to do something like that and give to help wipe out debt, whether that's in medical bills, student debt, um, credit card bills, whatever the case may be. We can't do that without you, without, you know, being a monthly patron to us. And the way to do that is just go into our website, blackagendapod.com. Or if you're listening to us in the Podbean app, you can actually click on the donate tab straight in the app. When you get there, you'll see many different levels that you can donate as a monthly donation, where you get a lot of different gifts from Devin and myself, like being on the show, suggesting shows, ideas for us, and even getting a shout out here and there. So we'd love to have you become a monthly patron. Like I said, go to blackagendapod.com and click on that donate tab and start giving. The other thing, and as Devin mentioned, since this is the last episode of the month, this is the last time we're going to be mentioning Race Forward. But remember, Race Forward conducts original and broadly accessible research on pressing racial justice issues. They work to build movements for racial justice in partnership with communities, organizations and sectors. They build strategies to advance racial justice in our policies, institutions and in culture. Lastly, they imagine a just, multiracial, democratic society free from oppression and exploitation in which people of color thrive with power and purpose. So go check them out. Like I said, this is our last time promoting Race Forward. Really cool charity of the month. We'll make sure to give a graphic to go on our web, uh, go on our uh, social media pages just so you can kind of remember them. But like I said, it's Race Forward. That is right. Make sure you check them out. Help us out. Help them out. Help us all out. (laughs) We could all use the support. And so, again, this is our last episode of October. It's been a great month, a lot of great news and interviews and conversations. So make sure you go back and check out some of our past interviews. If you're just getting in here, Um, we had a lot of great things this month. Um, A lot of, you know, action things, you know, getting involved in the community, redistricting, gerrymandering, civic engagement. This is kind of the month for you to learn what you can do on a local level. And we covered it all this past month. So make sure you go listen to those interviews. Um, You can also keep up with this on social media. So you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our handle is at Black Agenda Pod. And again, that's at Black Agenda Pod. So make sure you go follow us so you can keep up with us and the podcast and what's happening with that. Um, You can also find us on YouTube. Just go on there and search the Black Agenda podcast and you'll find our catalog. It's it's excellent. You can go through and find interviews about critical race theory, black history. Uh, We talk about politics. We've got politicians. You name it. We've probably talked about it on the show. So make sure you go check out our catalog, both on YouTube, but also on the streaming, uh, the streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio. We're pretty much on every platform, so you can find us wherever you listen to your music. And so for me and Adrian, we again, we appreciate you staying with us. We appreciate your support and listening to us and sticking around. 
and we've enjoyed it. And we'll be back with you next month on November 6th for weekly roundup number 21. And so until then, we'll catch you next time. Oh,